It's Tuesday, October the 11th, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. While I can lay claim to that rather wordy job title, I'm not the only fellow who's doing podcasts these days. I encourage you to uh, check out our website and see for yourself what Hoover has to offer. Go to hoover.org. Uh, Go to the top of the page where it says commentary, then scroll over to where it says multimedia and up will pop all our podcasts. You can subscribe to any or all of them if you like. Uh, You can subscribe to them via iTunes. You can also sign up for a monthly pod blast, which delivers the best for our podcast your inbox each and every month. Our guest today is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Dr. Bhattacharya, or Dr. Jay, as he's known in venues like this, is a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow. He's also a professor of medicine at Stanford University, as well as a senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research and Stanford's Freeman Spoley Institute. Dr. Bhattacharya's research focuses on the health and well-being of vulnerable populations, with an emphasis on the role of government programs, biomedical innovation, and economics. Jay, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be here, Bill. So you and I last talked in April, so that's about six months ago. So I'd like to begin this conversation by talking about where we are in the public health debate. And I'm going to make it uh, anecdotal for you, Jay. I took a red-eye flight uh, back east on Thursday night, and I noticed the world has changed. Uh, Maybe uh, more people listen to the president than I think, and they believe that COVID is over. Here's what I saw, Jay. Um, In the San Francisco airport, a pretty busy airport, um, very few people wearing masks. Uh, Sure, some people still masked up. uh, Some people look very frail and perhaps they definitely needed the masking. Other people who looked, well, just kind of nervous or, you know, if you just know the type, especially if you fly to California, they just, they're, if they're not germaphobes, they're just really worried. And so they're sometimes, you know, the type, they wear a mask, they wear a shield, they have Kleenex with them. They, they're just on guard. But then Jay, when you get on the plane, uh, you start noticing subtle differences. The, the flight attendants are no longer really kind of putting the sanitizer in your face for you to take. They just kind of have the basket there and you have to reach out and grab it for if you want. Uh, whereas a few months ago, there was a very earnest PA announcement saying that as a courtesy, maybe you want to wear a mask for your fellow passengers, no PA announcement this time. And very few people on the plane wore a mask, Jay. So COVID may not be over. Sorry, Mr. President, but it seems that a lot of people are over the pandemic. Would you, would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I think that the tide has really turned in the way that people are thinking and acting, uh, even in deep blue areas like, uh, like where we live, Bill. Uh, I think the key difference is that uh, a very large number of people have had COVID and recovered. And what that means is that they, it's not that they'll never get COVID again. It's that, that, that they're likely to be protected against severe outcomes if they do get COVID again. Um, and uh, that, what, that means that, uh, that you know, whatever precautions you're taking to try to avoid getting COVID, they didn't work in the first place. Um, and uh, the fear of COVID has subsided, which is why I think you're seeing, seeing a lot of the behavior change in, even in deep blue areas. Mm-hmm. Okay. Second uh, anecdotal uh, thing to throw by you. My sister went to her doctor the other day. She was recovering from walking pneumonia. And uh, in the course of the conversation, the question about getting yet another booster, um, the doctor looked at her health records. Uh, they know each other very well. She's not in a risk category. Really, the doctor felt and said, it's kind of the balls in your court as to whether or not you want to get the booster. At the same time, Jay, the White House's COVID response coordinator was all over television last week telling us all to get another booster. I mean, uh, if you look at the booster uptake, you know, these bivalent boosters, it's, it's very, very low, despite a, an all-out push by, uh, by, by uh, you know, the public health PR machine. So I think it's like 5%. Same thing happened with the, the child vaccines. Uh, I think maybe 6% of the of, of, of toddlers have had the vaccine. Um, and the question is why? I mean, I think what's, what's happened is that the public 
no longer trust public health. They're no longer, and, and it's and it's really kind of a shame, Bill. I mean, I think it it hurts the public health when we don't have a trustworthy public health. You know, I think if public health had said, look, if you're if you have are in a high risk group, you know, older, haven't had COVID yet, you have multiple comorbidities, it's really important to get the booster. Um, that would have been one thing. Instead, they pushed the booster out to a, to very broad populations, healthy or unhealthy, um, on the basis of, in the case of the Pfizer study, on the basis of a study of, of, of mice and no humans, um, you, you know, at, where they demonstrated no clinical benefit to humans at all in the studies that were presented to the FDA or, or the CDC when, when it was approved. It's not surprising that people have lost trust in it. It's, a, it's not surprising that this campaign has failed. Um, they they skip they skip steps and people see that and understand that and behave accordingly. All right. So why is the White House then going on television and telling everyone to get boosted? I, I think that they don't have any tools left for trying to manage the pandemic, um, and I, I think that that the, the White House is advised by scientific advisors that are overly o- overly solicitous of ph- pharmaceutical company propaganda. Uh, and uh, not sufficiently skeptical about, and, and, and I mean, you know, like they, they have regulatory power. They could have, asked, the FDA could have asked Pfizer to run a trial on humans before they approved the drug, before they approved the product. Um, I, I think they just, they just, their science team has made tremendous mistakes in, uh, in regulating the, 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 the rollout of the, of the vaccines. And the other thing I'd say is like, I think people have lost trust in them in part because they pushed very hard for vaccine mandates in the previous year, in 2021 and into 2022. Mm-hmm. Uh, people lost their jobs over this. Uh, they, they ignored the fact that COVID recovery provides substantial immunity. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I think they're just in a tough place. They, they are pushing uh, a, a failed strategy over and over again, uh, ignoring basic scientific facts, ignoring basic facts about human psychology and uh, as a result, have, have made it a hash of public health in the United States. Okay. Um, I've been reading up for this podcast, Jay. I, I stumbled across an article in Forbes that talked about rising COVID numbers in Europe, uh, suggesting that the United States is next. I'm curious, first of all, if indeed that is how things travel, if it comes across the ocean that way. But secondly, if a wave is coming to the U.S., Jay, how do we react to the wave? Is this something special because it's COVID or is this more just like flu season and a flu wave that's coming through? Uh, it's it's coming to the U.S. Absolutely, we don't have any technology to stop the spread of COVID. Um, I don't necessarily think it comes just from Europe. I mean, it's it's yeah. now a global world. I mean, it's it, we've opened up our, our the, the world again. Right. Um, and, and of course, COVID is is endemic in the United States as well. It's not as if we're clean of COVID in the U.S. Just because the wave mm-hmm. is. Um, uh, what what you're what you're uh, uh, seeing is essentially what we're going to see for the rest of time. There will be COVID waves that come and go repeatedly for the rest of history. As long as humans are alive, there will be COVID. Um, it's, 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 uh, it's different than the flu because the, the way that the flu uh, transmits, I think really does, you know, you, you, you can look in Australia, for instance, in the flu strain that happens to predominate in Australia during the Australian winter, and then right. predict what will happen in the, uh, in the American winter from it. Uh, not, not perfectly, but somewhat. Uh, with COVID, we have no idea how to predict future uh, future variants and how how what, you know how, how those will look. Um, but in any case, we don't have a technology for stopping the spread of it. Uh, what we do what we do know is that unlike the flu, if you get COVID and recover, it seems to protect against other variants, and not not against getting COVID, but against 
the severe outcomes when you get COVID. That's been the case with the variants thus far. Uh, so I had the Delta COVID and I've you know, basically been protected against the Omicron COVID, as best I can tell. Um, it's not that I can't get it, just it's likely that if I get it, it'll be milder. Yeah, uh, these articles, Jay, they uh, tend to circle November on the calendar as when the wave is going to hit the U.S. Is that a function of just how fast um, the, the, this travels, or is it a function of weather in the United States, or is, or is it a little bit of both? Mostly, well, I think it's mostly the latter, Bill. I think uh, this is it very clearly has seasonal patterns to it, it especially in, in a when it's endemic. Essentially, you see it spread more likely in the more, more easily in the winter. And November is when the waves hit in 2020, 2021, and very likely also in 2022. It's not that hard a prediction to make. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, we're likely to see a wave in November. Absolutely. Starting in November, it'll last through, you know, what, January, February, uh, or into early March, maybe, and then it'll subside. That's that's likely. And it'll have a seasonal pattern. So, uh, you know, places uh, pla- places further north will get hit. For, hit, uh, hit uh, some of the... It's interesting, though, if you look at the Florida numbers, uh, the last two summers, there have been actually waves in Florida, including a, a massive delta wave in 2021, um, very low, small wave in the summer, this this summer in Florida, um, indicating perhaps widespread immunity to, to COVID mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in places that were hit. Okay, a November arrival of COVID would sound really bad in terms of timing, Jay, for a simple reason that this is a, a period of the year when people socialize. There's Thanksgiving, there's travel, holiday parties, Christmas parties, Christmas travel, Christmas shopping, people are out and about. Jay, how's the public going to react if the health establishment pushes back the way it did 30 months ago in terms of lockdowns, in terms of mass mandates, in terms of school closures, stay-at-home orders? I don't want to be alarmist here, by the way, but this is just what I'm curious about. Just if we go down the same path we did 30 months ago of just trying to shut down society, I just I just don't think society is going to go along with the program. I think you're right. I mean, this is one of the reasons, in fact, the main reason I uh, co-wrote the Great Barrington Declaration in October of 2020 because I saw right. there was going to be lockdowns coming. Um, I don't believe the political will to do to reimpose school closures, lockdowns, all of those restrictions are, are going to be in place. Uh, it's it, at this point very clear that none of that worked and was incredibly damaging to children and to uh, uh, to, to young people and to many men and you know, basically everybody, psychologically, physically. Uh, so I don't think the, the, the I think if if any politician tries to reimpose those those kinds of policies, they're going to face a stiff headwind. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jay, could you take a moment, explain, uh, give us just sort of the highlight of the Great Barrington Declaration, then also, Jay, the question of whether or not it needs to be updated since it's been now two years. <laughs> um, so the Great Barrington Declaration, I wrote it with Sunetra Gupta of Oxford University, a fantastic epidemiologist there, and then Martin Kuldorf, then of Harvard University, uh, who's a biostatistician at Harvard and an epidemiologist, another fantastic epidemiologist. Uh, we wrote uh, the, the the we wrote it based on two basic scientific facts. One is that lockdowns are incredibly harmful to the health of populations, and I think that's abundantly clear if you just you know just look at the schooling outcomes of children, mm-hmm. uh, the, the delayed healthcare, uh, the tremendous damage to economics. Uh, like you know, I think the inflation is partly a lockdown harm. Um, uh, we could go on, uh, and then the second fact is that there was this very steep age gradient in the risk profile of who's susceptible to severe disease from COVID. Older people are much more likely to die. 80% of the deaths are people over the age of 65 from COVID, I think, worldwide. Um, and so with those two facts, the way to deal with the pandemic is focus protection of vulnerable people and then uh, lifting lockdowns. That's the Great Parenting Declaration in a nutshell. 
Um, you, you, I, I think we were right. I think if uh, countries like Sweden to follow those policies have lower uh, all-cause mortality throughout the pandemic than um, the, the basically almost the whole rest of Europe, including Finland, which is a you know, Scandinavian country next to all the Scandinavian countries all did really well on that on those metrics. Uh, they also they all had much lighter touch uh, lockdowns than uh, than say for instance uh, California. Okay, um, go ahead, go ahead, Jay. Oh, you you asked about updating bills, so I just yeah, updating to... whether or not if, is it a is it a living breathing document? Is it like the Constitution that needs revisiting <laughs> constantly, or is it just set in stone? I think the principles are set in stone. I don't think it needs updating. It mainly mainly because it's, frankly, Bill, it's not original. It's not even it's not even close to an original idea. It's the way that we handled respiratory viral pandemics before uh, twenty twenty. Uh, we we focus protection on the most vulnerable people. We developed therapeutics, vaccines, and uh, deployed them more rapidly as we could to to vulnerable people. And we disrupted the rest of society as little as possible. That was the old pandemic plan. It's it worked for a century of respiratory virus pandemics. That's all we did. Is we restated those principles. Those those principles don't need updating. Those those actually worked in the past and will work again if we adopt them again. Um, we have to repudiate this lockdown strategy. I, I don't think it needs updating in terms of its principles. Of course, now when you repudiate, Jay, you're quickly accused of what misinformation. That leads us to a, a bill just signed into law here in California. We talked about this uh, when we did our podcast last time about six months ago. This was Assembly Bill 2098, uh, AB 2098, uh, signed into law earlier this month by California Governor Gavin Newsom. Uh, what this does is applies to the licensure and regulation of physicians and surgeons by the Medical Board of California and the Osteopathic Medical Board of California. Jay, I want to read a passage uh, of this bill to you and then get your thoughts on this. Uh, the bill reads, quote, it shall constitute unprofessional conduct for a physician and surgeon to disseminate misinformation or disinformation related to COVID-19, including false or misleading information regarding the nature and risk of the virus, its prevention and treatment, and the development, safety, and effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccines. It goes on, Jay, misinformation, quote-unquote misinformation, means false information that is contradicted by contemporary scientific consensus contrary to the standard of care. Uh, Jay, this this is chilling in a couple of regards, but first of all, who decides what is contemporary scientific consensus contrary to the standard of care? <laughs> uh, apparently, there's a there's a ministry of truth more. I mean, in effect, within the within the federal government that's 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 aimed at this. Uh, they they cooperate very closely with social media and 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 and, uh, and like traditional media to try to uh, push out what they think so uh, scientific consensus is. You know, Bill, there really isn't. A single body that has that can unerringly decide this is true, this is false, especially in the context of a evolving new right. infectious disease. It's it's absolutely insane. This I mean, this does a couple of things that are really really bad. I think so. One is if you are seeing your doctor now in California, start at, you know as soon as the bill comes in place in January, I think. Um, you, essentially, what what it means is that you have in the room with you the CDC. The doctor then is not actually caring for you, the doctor is, is, is essentially just parroting CDC orders. Um, right. and so they're, they're, they're going to look, be, the doctor's going to be looking over their shoulder thinking, should I say this, even though I think it's in the best interest of my patient, should I say this? It might contradict what the CDC says, and they, they'll scale it back. It, it fundamentally undermines the doctor-patient relationship, the trust that's absolutely necessary for doctors to, uh, for patients to trust their doctors. Um, the second thing is does, it's interesting, it's, it's uh, the signing statement on this bill, Gavin Newsom, when he signed it, wrote that it only applies to doctor-patient relationships and so on in, in, inside medical, uh, inside. But, but in fact, if you read the bill as you, as you read it, it's incredibly vague about that. Right. And one of the, pro- the main authors of the bill, this guy, Richard Penn, who's a state ca- California senator, 
has attacked me repeatedly by name online, even though I don't practice. I do research full time, as you said, at the beginning. Right. And, um, and, and so why is he attacking me? I'm not, I'm not at threat of telling a single patient of mine uh, any misinformation at all because I don't see patients. Um, well, you're, 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 you're a public face of this, just like our colleague Scott Atlas is a public face of this. So that makes you a very easy target. Yes, but if if it's about misinformation spread by patients by doctors to their patients, why is it right. attacking me? In fact, the purpose of the bill is broader than just that. The purpose of the bill is to chill scientific discussion, to make sure that anyone who contradicts uh, people like Richard Pan or Tony Fauci uh, are 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 are, uh, are subject to sort of opprobrium and and uh, and and you know slimed, smeared in public, just like Dr. You know, Dr. Pan, the Senator Pan, is trying to do to me. Um, so I think I think you have here a bill that is contrary to good doctor-patient relationships and contrary mm-hmm. to the American First Amendment. There's another problem here, Jay. If you look at the uh, makeup of the osteopathy board, for example, there are nine members, five are physician slots. Uh, if you look at the uh, medical board makeup, Jay, 15 members on that board, eight are physician slots, the remaining seven are quote-unquote public members, meaning that lawmakers appoint them. So they they go with the flow of what the politicians want. Uh, on the med board, uh, the uh, head of the med board is a woman named Christina Lawson. Um, she may have her heart in the right place in terms of public service, but she's a Jerry Brown appointee to this. She um, has a 10-year gig, by the way. It runs through June of 26. Jay, she's an attorney in the Bay Area. Her specialty is land use and environmental law. So should she be deciding really what is sound science and what is misinformation? And again, no offense to you, Ms. Lawson, but yeah, you're not a doctor. Well, I just, I, th- I think uh, the medical board has a legitimate purpose, right? If you, yeah. if you have a doctor who is truly harming patients, you want to have that doctor's license removed. Absolutely. Uh, but when a, when a doctor looks at a patient who's, a, you know, like a, a, a toddler or someone who's have trouble wearing a mask, the parent, the parents say, oh, I, I he just didn't wear it. He pulls it off. He's crying. I, I, I can see it's hurting him. Um, and the doctor says, "Okay, I'll write you a a, a, a leave so you don't a, 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 an exemption so you don't so, you, so that your child doesn't have to wear it in school." Well, that that doctor is going to think twice about doing that, even though it's in the maybe in the patient's best interest to do that. Um, uh, you, you shouldn't. That's not malpractice. That's just good medicine. You want to care for the patient in front of you. If the public health advice hurts the patient, you want the doctor to side with the patient, not with the public health advice. Um, uh, you know, in the best clinical judgment of the doctor. So I, I think um, I think what you have here is a category error, uh, so a medical board that is legitimately supposed to police uh, a truly criminal or or uh, bad malpractice to protect patients has now stepped into a scientific fight with that it has not equipped to enter, that has not it does not have the tools to enter. It's not actually uh, have any of the expertise necessary to tell the difference between true and false when it comes to, to COVID science and COVID policy. Uh, and, I, and I think that, that is, that's, the, that's the major problem. It should not be using its muscle to try to, dis, to destroy, uh, with, and, and, you know, as, as a result, destroying doctor-patient relationships, but, and also chilling free speech. It should just let science happen. Um, this is a really poorly conceived bill. You know, Jay, science is always a work in progress. What, what do we know about COVID uh, today that we did not know 30 months ago when we were locking folks down? Well, the, I think uh, we've learned a lot more about the nature of, of immunity. Thir- like 30 months ago, there was a big debate over exactly what herd immunity me- would mean, right? So when we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, we were, uh, we were opposed by a group called the, the, who wrote the John Snow Memorandum, including signed by the current CDC director. 
who in effect said that we don't know if there's any immunity at all after COVID recovery. Um, now, I, I was pretty sure that she was wrong then because the, I was reading the clinical literature and the scientific literature on the nature of the immune response. It was really clear that there was actually pretty substantial immunity after COVID recovery. Um, and that's turned out to be true. We know that with now absolute certainty. The nature of that is different than I think some people have thought, right? So some, when we say herd immunity, some people thought that meant herd immunity like the measles. With measles, you get measles or you get the vaccine from measles and you no longer have any risk of getting measles again. Basically right. for your life, what herd immunity there means that the disease effectively disappears until uh, you know, newly susceptible people arrive. Mm -hmm. um, here you have uh, the kind of thing what herd immunity actually means is a decoupling between cases and deaths. You get a very large number of cases this November, but I predict many fewer deaths per, ca per capita per case than happened in 2020 because the population has, has, is broadly immunized against this, both, uh, both in part by the vaccine, but also by a very large fraction of the population who had, had COVID and recovered. Um, that's, that is what herd immunity looks like a, a, for COVID, a decoupling of cases and uh, severe outcomes. Are there other examples within the Great Barrington Declaration, Jay, uh, in which the Medical Board of California could have taken one of those examples, put you before them and taken away your license, but 30, 24 months later, you would have been proven right. They would have been proven wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, another one is uh, the question of whether it was possible to protect vulnerable people. Like the Great Barrington Declaration was saying that uh, vulnerable people can be protected even without severe measures to try to stop the spread of the disease. Right. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of a lot of people in public health thought that was not true, that it was impossible to protect vulnerable people. We, the only way to protect vulnerable people was with lockdown. Right. Um, and uh, I, in fact, there was a bunch of legal cases I was involved with, these anti-lockdown legal cases I was involved with, where experts on the other side essentially made, made that case, right? To say, look, we have to control the number of cases. Um, the, uh, I think we've been proven right, right? So uh, those measures did not control the number of cases. Despite all those measures, we had you know, huge outbreaks in 2020, in winter 2020 in California, for instance, um, in 2021 as well. Uh, we, those what and uh, it didn't protect vulnerable people in California, for instance. Uh, a very large fraction of the deaths of still happened to people over over the age of sixty five and in nursing homes, despite the lockdowns. Um, so, uh, and the idea that you couldn't protect vulnerable people at all that also I think has been proven wrong, right? So places mm -hmm. like Sweden did a much better job after after the early days of the pandemic we did a poor job in stockholm but after the early days of the pandemic a much better job protecting older people than you you would have expected uh, uh, if you believe the old view the, the other view that only lockdowns protect the vulnerable uh florida has had the, roughly the same age adjusted mortality per capita from covid mm -hmm. as california despite a very light touch on its lockdown on, on its on its measures um and lower all cause excess deaths again, age adjusted than California. How do you explain that? The lockdowns did not actually protect vulnerable people. Uh, we would have been, you know, we, 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 again, I'm not, I wouldn't have been subject to the law because I'm not a practicing physician, but I, but, right. but practicing physicians that advocated those kinds of measures to the, to, to their patients might've been. Um, and certainly the, the purpose was to chill discussion and, and they would have, they would have been wrong and we would have been right. 
So, Jay, what is the balance between questioning science, conventioning what is convention, questioning what is conventional wisdom, versus those people out there who are just gadflies? They're not even scientists, and they go into different dark parts of the web and they say, "Drink bleach, and you won't get COVID." So, how, so how do how do we how do we uh, do healthy skepticism versus just what is blatantly bad? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, like you know, like the the when um, the question is like, uh, how do you actually combat? actual misinformation, right? So like just take one that I saw on the web occasionally, right? So the vaccine makes you magnetic or some some such thing, right? Uh, I, I think the problem with it, so like the, 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 the reaction of some people uh, in the scientific community to that is let's censor that. Let's suppress the spread of that so it doesn't, doesn't like catch on in the community. The problem, the problem is that the science, uh, the, the public health community has lost uh, its credibility it can't come out and say this is nonsense, even though it is nonsense, and have people believe it because they lost credit. The, the solution to that problem is to have a credible public health authority that people will look to for actual honest advice. And the way you can do that is by honestly saying what you know and what you don't know, not suppressing uh, other people. Uh, that one, you know, I'd like to, like take that magnetic thing that it's just a nonsense thing, but it'd be so easy to combat if you had a credible public health. You just show, just do a little experiment. Have somebody get vaccinated, put a little magnet on, see the magnet drop off. <laughs> I mean, how hard would that be to combat? And you just spread that out. That would that would capture the attention of many more people and many more people would believe the true information as a result of, of that clean experiment shown by a credible public health authority. The problem of misinformation is caused by lack of credibility in the center, not by uh, some, some random person saying, oh, what if, what if the, the, the vaccine is magnetic? Right. Good point. Uh, I want to play a hypothetical with you, Jay. It's January 2025, and there is a new president in the White House, and he or she comes from the other side of the aisle. So he or she has a chance to really shake up, if not rebuild, reboot the public health, uh, the federal health establishment, the federal public health establishment. What should he or she do when it comes to dealing with NIH and CDC and these various you know, initial uh, government entities, which we found are incredibly powerful and just very problematic? Yeah, well, I think I think there's the, uh, the first thing is to root out deep conflicts of interest that, that are sort of uh, have been exposed during the pandemic. Uh, okay, this, this is for example, this is for example, this Dr. Fauci handing out grants, and then those who get the grants then praising Dr. Fauci and defending Dr. Fauci. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, I mean that's certainly one that I I didn't okay. fully understand, I didn't fully appreciate it before the pandemic. Uh, right. Science funders should not be involved in science policy. Mm-hmm. It, it is a fundamentally a corrupting thing. So, uh, like, so in particular, someone like Tony Fauci sits on top of billions and billions of dollars of, of federal money that makes or breaks the careers of immunologists, epidemiologists, and other scientists. Um, when he says lockdowns are the only way, the Great Branch Declaration is nonsense, uh, and then, then smears scientists who oppose him, um, well, other scientists are going to pile on because they don't want their careers threatened. They'll mm-hmm. all go silent if they have reservations. Um, it is deeply corrupting to have a scientific funder so closely involved with health policy. That's a deep conflict. And that's, that's uh, relatively easy to fix with ethics rules and, and, uh, and a new culture within the NIH. Um, the NIH, I th- also think, I think it's been exposed as, as have, 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 uh, they, they haven't really uh, protected the public interest against support of dangerous scientific agendas. Uh, I, I think the agenda of finding viruses in bat caves, bringing them to labs that are where there's inadequate uh, security, um, and then doing dangerous experiments of them with them, uh, that was 
probably Ill, that seems like it was ill-conceived. Ill and um, there was a lot of pushback during the during the, the 2010s to try to slow down that research agenda. But if people like Tony Fauci barreled over those objections, and it's quite possible that they're just the source of the epidemic. I think better protections of uh, against dangerous research with people with a broader set of people overseeing people like Tony Fauci, less power to the, the agency heads for deciding research agendas like that, uh, I think would be would be good for the NIH. Um, the other side of this on the, like the FDA and now it turns out even the CDC, pharmaceutical interests have played a pretty substantial role in the decision making in at both the FDA and the CDC. Uh, there are bright line ethical rules that I think that have been violated and they absolutely need to need to uh, uh, be reformed so that those kinds of rules don't get violated. Uh, pharmaceutical companies are important, but they need to be overseen by independent regulators. And I think that that has, uh, to a large extent, not happened during the pandemic. What about the idea of returning some of these entities to their original core missions, which is scientific research and not deciding what is public health policy? But then, Jay, the question would be, if you take away their ability to drive public health policy, who decides health policy? If there's another terrible wave and we decide have to decide about mandates and lockdowns, who makes that decision? I mean, in principle, the CDC is the is the agency that's supposed to do public health policy. I mean, right. that's that's so that that's the that's a legitimate use of CDC power. Um, they've just done it very poorly, um, and I think partly it, they've done it poorly because um, the NIH, which is supposed to just fund research, is supposed to be a research organization, not a not a health policy organization, has encroached on the CDC. If you look back, for instance, during the Trump administration. Um, what role did Robert Redfield actually play in, in policymaking? It really seemed like he was sidelined by Tony Fauci and Deborah right. Brooks. Why was that? That, that was a big mistake. If you, if you have an agency that's supposed to set policy and there's regulatory sort of uh, uh, restrictions on exactly how they can do it and, there's the, 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 and you have a culture that, that, that supports that, you should rely on that agency for setting the policy. Instead, uh, it, it was sidelined and now I think captured by, by pharma interests uh, in many ways. Uh, it's really, it's really discredited. Used to be seen as one of the world's, as probably the world's most, uh, world's best example of a of a, of a great public health uh, uh, regulatory agency. I think that its reputation is in tatters. Um, it's it, you know it's promoted really poor research. Uh, it hasn't really kept up to speed with uh, with what the science is actually saying, and it's pushed policies that have uh, that have harmed the lives of a tremendous number of people. Uh, in, in ways that haven't protected them from the disease. So it's a failed agency at this point. It, it legitimately should be setting public health policy, but it did, did a very poor job. Uh, the FDA also sets public health policy in a very narrow way, approval or not, or, or not approval of drugs, evaluation of safety. It should do that without having, uh, without causing the public to think that somehow it's, 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 in the, it's basically an arm of pharma. Um, and then uh, the, 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 the NIH, it should stay out of policy altogether. That was a big mistake involving Francis Collins and Tony Fauci, uh, Tony Fauci in public health policy making. I think one other lesson for future administrations, Jay, is uh, you can't have so many voices talking at the same time. I mean, you had the president, you had President Trump talking about this. You had his press secretary talking about it. You had Fauci talking about it. Scott Ellis went to the White House. He talked about it. Um, that just creates one thing. It's a tower of Babel in terms of noise, and it's just tailor-made for confusion and dissension in the ranks and confusion. So um, I think you'd have to streamline the public voice, if you will, and just find one person who's going to talk. But then again, you have to make sure that your administration is on page with that public health official, if they go rogue, if you will, then, you know, here's where trouble begins again. Yeah, well, I think a lot, during the Trump administration's handling of the pandemic, it was definitely marred by infighting. And in particular, it was marred by 
uh, public health bureaucrats who viewed it as their job to manage the president as opposed to sort right. of put in place what the president wanted as, as his as his strategy. Um, I, I think that that is, I mean, it's, it's kind of a strange, strange problem for a president to have, but that certainly, I think, characterizes the Trump administration's approach to the pandemic. Um, uh, during the Biden administration, what you had is uh, a lot of interference by the White House, uh, political people on policymaking. And so you also still have this cacophony of voices, none of which actually truly understands what, what, it, what uh, the scientific uh, literature, how the scientific literature has evolved, nor how uh, the, the, the consequences of its draconian policies on, on the well-being and uh, trustworthiness of science, the well-being of people and the trustworthiness of both scientific agencies. Um, so I think what you have is, a, is essentially a policy disaster. How you do that with a single voice is hard. In principle, the CDC should be managing that, right? In principle, the CDC director, but you have to have a trustworthy CDC director right. um, that, that actually truly understands both pu public health and the scientific uh, basis for public health. And I don't think we've had that uh, um, in, in a while now. You've worked with the uh, state of uh, Florida and Governor DeSantis on uh, COVID policy. I'm curious as to how his organization works versus the federal government, both in terms of messaging, but also mechanics, Jay, but then also how that would compare contrast to here the state of California and Governor Newsom's approach. Well, I think uh, the state of Florida, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. I, I think uh, Governor uh, DeSantis seems to have a lot more control over the policymaking in Florida than, um, than for instance, uh, the, the tr than Trump had over his administration, the policymaking. Now, now, is that a reflection of him being able to appoint individuals to these posts, Jay, or is it just it's a smaller government, the governor has more power over this than the president does? What, what would be the difference? I mean, I think there's been some, some dissension inside Florida about how much power he actually should have, or does, but, but in fact, de facto, he has quite a bit of power. And I think that power stems from the fact that he, he actually understands the science. He, when he makes arguments, he is he's making it from an informed basis, so that when he says, you know, uh, mass mandates are on children are not likely to do anything. Let's let's not allow that to happen. Um, and he backs he backs it up with evidence. He has it's really hard to push back if you're a local public health official and you don't understand the literature better than the the, the, the governor does. And he uses his uh, his Department of, of of Health in part to like test his ideas or also to like to once once they're, they're convinced to sort of to to, to like uh to to to, to uh to uh tell people about them mm -hmm. it's all it all it's all unified it's sort of there's this like uh sort of synergy between um the strategy and uh determined by by governor DeSantis, I, I i think but also uh where he works to convince people inside this the state that this is the right strategy i mean i've not it's now he there's a lot of dissension. There's some dissension, like the, you know there are people who disagree with him all all over the place. That's true, um, but they're not suppressed. They just they they have their say, but they don't they don't get to be the voice of Florida public health because that that's not their role. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, you have California, where uh, you know I've seen seen Governor uh, the uh, our Governor uh, Governor Newsom. He basically on the one hand. He's responsible. He's responsible for the vaccine mandates. He's responsible for the the, the very strange continuing mask mandates. He's he's responsible for uh, for the, this 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 crazy bill that that he signed to to censor doctors who who, who uh, want to care for their patients. Right. Um, uh, he's he's responsible for all of this. But then he'll like, talk about how oh no uh, the, the L.A. County Public Health is just doing what it does. I want to allow local control. 
Um, right. I think the key problem is he does not understand the scientific literature, cannot actually fathom that there's something non-political underneath opposition to his policies when uh, you know, uh, uh, when you're talking about uh, uh, on public health. And I think uh, he's just a failed government in my, governor, in my view. I think he um, has let the policymaking get away from him. He wants to wants to like point the finger and say, oh, public health made me do it. But it's his responsibility to, to evaluate the, the advice he's getting against the evidence and then uh, take actions that are in the best interest of the California population. I don't believe he's done that very well. But, you know, uh, California politics is my bailiwick here at Hoover. So I'm at all times on Newsom watch. Um as he prepares to run for president, which seems uh, more and more likely with each passing day as he engages with DeSantis and red states at all times. Uh, during the pandemic, Jay, he kind of wanted to have his cake and eat it too. He wanted to do daily press conferences in Sacramento and show I'm in charge, I'm on top of the situation. Then he wanted to, to fan it out to the 58 counties and let them decide their own policies. Uh, remember that kids game 52 card pickup you know, where you just ha-ha throw the cards on the floor? That's 52 card pickup. It's kind of California. It's 58 county pickup, if you will. And so you had you had wonderful situations, Jay, where I live in Santa Clara County, which was incredibly restrictive, one of the most restricted counties in California. I'd have to wear a mask. But if I went across the county line to get my hair cut, the mask would come off. It was kind of dismaying. But um, the California example is a lot of things. I mean, if you remember Barbara Ferreira, who's the head of the Department of Public Health in Los Angeles County, she's not even an MD. She's I think she has a she's a doctor because she has a PhD, I think, in social welfare, if I'm not if I'm not wrong. And she's making medical decisions. It kind of gets me back to the California boards being made up of part doctors and part uh, and part non-doctors as well. But I'm just kind of curious, Jay, if the California model is going to hold up again, if we do have another spike, if we're going to go again to the 58 county pickup, or if there's maybe a, a better, smarter approach for Newsom to take here. Well, I mean, uh, there's, there seems to be a revolt happening against Barbara Ferreri, who's a yeah. county director in, in LA County, for instance. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think um, Newsom can't really absolve himself of responsibility. Like he he runs, he's, his California Department of Public Health is under his uh, his authority. Uh, they're making, I mean, I think uh, like some some good decisions, some very bad decisions. Um, but in any case, uh, you're, you're, what you have is uh, county health authorities that are going beyond what the, the U.S. CDC and California Department of Public Health has, has, has advised, like LA County has with uh, with with, uh, with 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 its various policies that it's that, that it continues to push. Um, uh, you know, like the mask, the, the close contact rules and quarantine for children or in, in uh, wearing masks or whatever in schools. Um, so, and so you have a, uh, what you have is like essentially rogue public health agencies within small, within counties that are, that are putting in place incredibly unpopular um, policies that, and, and Newsom, who, where is he? Like, what is, like, is, it, right. is he, is he actually in charge? Does he, does he understand the science enough? Um, uh, I, I, to, to, to like to, to understand what Barbara Ferrer is doing doesn't make any scientific sense at all. Uh, he seems to fully endorse it, mm-hmm. um, and I, so I don't think he can really get away with this, uh, with, with with absolving self responsibility, and then also taking credit for essentially a failed response. Our our, our children were out of school for a year and a half. Ch- poor kids in California effectively got no education for a year and a half. I, I think they're delaying the release of the. Of the of the of the like the, the the school testing results, math and science or whatever, um, till till like after the election, from my from my understanding. I mean, maybe you know more about right. this. Than I do. Um, it's it's likely to show some very very negative findings about what happened to poor California children uh, in terms of learning loss during the pandemic. If that's true everywhere else where there's been lockdowns and school closures, um, why would California be any different? Um, 
we really fail our kids and we fail the working class who suffered high levels of COVID and suffered job losses at incredible levels during the pandemic. Um, we failed our, the, our vulnerable elderly uh, who, who died. You know, forty percent of the deaths were in nursing homes. We failed people living in nursing homes. Uh, it, we we isolated people. We continued the social dissension with mass mandates that utterly failed to stop disease spread. All of this is on Newsom's watch. It's all of these are decisions that Governor Newsom made and had the capacity to stop if he if he had the mind to do so. He didn't. It's interesting, Jay. If you um, if you look at Newsom's numbers when he was elected in 2018, then when he uh, survived the recall election uh, last uh, last fall, uh, he got about the same overall vote in each uh, in each contest, about 61, 62 percent. Uh, but if you look inside the two votes, Jay, his uh, votes among Latinos fell about five percent, which I think might be related to a bit of the COVID backlash. But if there's another wave in politicians to ask us to scrimp and sacrifice, Jay, I think the question is, can the political class go along with the program? Um, you know, the governor can't go back to the French laundry. Nancy Pelosi can't go in to get her haircut. Diane Fanston can't uh, walk without a mask to a private plane at Dulles Airport and so forth. So this, I think, is part of the, the challenge in trying to ask the public to, to do something like this. But speaking of the political class, Jay, there is a lawsuit in federal court uh, filed by the uh, state attorney generals of Louisiana and Missouri. It's in the U.S. District Court in the Western District of Louisiana. The defendants are the president of the United States, Corrine Jean-Pierre, who's the president's press secretary, Vivek Murthy, who's the surgeon general. Uh, Javier Becerra, who's the uh, secretary of uh, HHS, the aforementioned Dr. Fauci, plus other Biden administration officials. What is being alleged here? What is your involvement in this? So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a uh, advisor to this lawsuit. I think I'm a named plaintiff, actually. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, what is being alleged is that uh, there was essentially coordination by federal government agencies, uh, a coordinated attempt to uh, to suppress free speech of Americans um, uh, through direct connection, direct coordination, direct uh, uh, censorship activities uh, at, by big tech, right? So essentially what you have is federal government bureaucrats writing emails to big tech saying, this, this, is, this is misinformation, that's misinformation, this is misinformation. Big tech jumping and saying, okay, we'll suppress it on our, 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 our platforms, you know, Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube, essentially all saying, okay, we'll do this. We'll, uh, and so sometimes they name particular people, but they always name uh, ideas that they don't like. And then big tech then goes, says, yes, sir, we'll do that. Um, that's a direct violation of the First Amendment. You mm-hmm. cannot have the federal government involved in suppressing con- the content of speech um, in, 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 in public. Um, and I personally have been affected by this. I've had... Uh, you know, I had a, I did this roundtable with Governor DeSantis in March of 2021, where I said that there are no randomized studies showing that child masking has any effect on disease spread. That was absolutely a true statement. And YouTube suppressed the video. Um, when we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, Google uh, around the world suppressed it, uh, suppressed it on search engines so that you couldn't find it. It was like page four at, below all of the nonsense uh, smearing and, and propaganda that, that, that governments themselves like put out against it. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, uh, Facebook took down the, the, the post, uh, to put the, 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 the Great Branch Declaration Facebook page for a week for absolutely no reason. Um, uh, Martin Kulldorff, who was the co-author of Great Branch Declaration, his Twitter account was suspended for a while, for a while, for again, with no good reason. Um, uh, and I, I think, um, a, a lot of that happened at the behest of government agencies that right. effectively told, uh, big tech what to do. And, 
you know, a lot of the other lawsuits that have been, have been aimed at big tech uh, have failed in part because they, they, I think they have some protections against uh, you know, being publishers or whatnot. I don't really understand the, the legal aspects of this, um, right. why that's failed. It seems like there'd be good, good cases to be made. In any case, um, this is a different case. This is saying the government directed the big tech. And big tech, you know, if, if I were a big tech uh, um, CEO, I, I'd be quite scared of what, if the government's telling me this is misinformation, you need to suppress it or else, generally that or else is implied, they can do a lot of harm to those companies. The government could. Um, they're not acting just independently. They are essentially arms of the government. And that is a violation of First Amendment rights. Okay, so the lawsuit, if it's successful, it proves there's collusion, but then what is the policy remedy? Well, it's, it's kind of, you know, the, the, I think this is, to my opinion, this is the probably the most important free speech case since that New York Times versus Sullivan case, you know, the Pentagon Papers case. Right. Uh, what was the remedy there? I mean, the government essentially then couldn't stop the New York Times from pu- publishing. Um, I think it's going to be something like this. There's going to have to be uh, uh, new ethical lines drawn inside government agencies, bright, bright red lines that say, you, sh- you shall not go there or else. That would be the remedy, to have a, a, a transformation of government, uh, government uh, agencies so that these kinds of activities never, they, no, no government, government bureaucrat ever even thinks of this kind of activity where they can uh, direct what social media does or does not do. Um, that is a direct violation of American First Amendment rights and should not ever, ever have happened and should not ever happen again in the future. Okay. Well, I look forward to seeing it make its way through the court. So what are you working on these days, Jay? What are you, what are you up to? I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to get a book going on my, my uh, uh, essentially like a memoir kind of thing on, on, on what, what I've been, what I worked on during the pandemic. I've, I've had the privilege of, of interacting with, with governors, with, uh, with, with presidents, prime ministers, um, uh, legislators uh, with with scientists like you know of, of incredibly high level, and I think people might be interested in in my story. It's I've also uh, part of it is the story is the story of of, uh, of how universities have treated dissent during the pandemic, um, and my personal story on that is, is I, I think will interest a lot of people. Um, unfortunately, I don't really have a lot of happy things to say about about uh, about Stanford and, and some other and many and and. Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm trying to write something around that. Uh, it's, it's been hard, actually, because it's involved uh, uh, talking about people that were former friends of mine. Um, I, I, I want to be fair, but also I think I want to tell the story in, in truth, the way it actually happened. Well, when you write it and publish it, uh, maybe you'd like to come do a podcast with me and talk about it. Would love to, Bill. Well, Jay Bhattacharya, enjoyed the conversation. Uh, stay healthy, my friend. Look forward to seeing you back in Stanford when I travel west and go through the airports again. And I guess we're going to be talking about the pandemic for the foreseeable future because I guess the president's not right. It's not over, but the public wants to be over it. Well, thank you, Bill. Thank you for the opportunity to talk. Okay, take care, my friend. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, spread the word. Get your Tell your friends about us. Uh, get them to subscribe. Spread it around. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Now we get complicated. Dr. J. Bhattacharya is on Twitter. Here we go, folks. His Twitter handle is at Dr. J. Bhattacharya. 
Bhattacharya spelled B-H-A-T-T-A-C-H-A-R-Y-A at Dr. J. Bhattacharya. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the podcast. That is www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report. which delivers the best work of J. Bhattacharya and his Hoover colleagues to your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.